You're tuned in to shifthappens.media on CJLYFM, Radio with a Heart. My name is Jeff Pilsner. And I'm Anna Boxstrom. Shift Happens airs from 2 until 4 p.m. every Tuesday and also every Sunday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLYFM. Podcasts of the show are also available at KootenyCoopRadio.com and ShiftHappens.media, or you can also listen live on KootenyCoopRadio.com. Shift Happens, affecting positive change, one shift at a time. Today on ShiftHappens.media, we're going to play some tunes from a Canadian musical artist that's no longer with us the amazing guitarist Jeff Healy. We're also going to play an interview that we just conducted with Tom Steven, the former drummer who's written a book about his experiences with the group, which honors the memory of the Jeff Healy band. And it's election time once again for our brothers and sisters south of the 49th parallel. And continuing with the theme that we started last week, We'll be playing another couple excerpts from CD projects that we created shortly after 9-11. And speaking of 9-11, we were playing last week excerpts of various exposés about 9-11 and the reasons why we think that it was an inside job. And we were going to continue on with that and talking about the reasons why that might have happened this week, but because we had this opportunity to talk to Tom Stephen about his upcoming book, we are going to postpone that one until next week or the week after. So anyway, hopefully you'll enjoy what's coming up on this week's episode of Shift Happens on CJLYFM, radio with a heart. Okay, so the show started out with three songs. Tim Minchin, Rock and Roll Nerd. I like that guy. Heart, Stairway to Heaven. And that was from, what was that uh, location? It was actually the Kennedy Center oh, Honors Led right, Zeppelin. Right. And everyone who listens to our show knows my opinion of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. And that last song was Jeff Healy, Angel Eyes. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Jeff Healy, coming up next is our interview with the drummer of his band, Tom Steven. Tom has just written a book about his life with Jeff Healy. Tom had some really interesting stories to tell about life on the road with Jeff Healy because Jeff was blind, but he really hated to admit that he was blind. So he would do some crazy things. In one situation, Tom woke up by being thrown out of his bunk on the tour bus, and he went forward to discover that Jeff Healy was trying to drive the bus. Can you tell us what the name of the book is? Yes, it's called um, um, uh, Best Seat in the House and My Life with the Jeff Healy, with the Jeff Healy Band. And it's available on, I believe, Amazon and Indigo. Uh, it's the store's November 6th, and it's on Amazon and then go now for orders. Okay. And then there's what I call a talking book. I never can remember what the proper terminology is. And that's there as well. So it sounds like I've read the bio of, of the Jeff Healy band and, and obviously listened to your music. It sounds like it was a bit of a wild ride. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Jeff was, was one of the greats. Yeah, probably, in, you know, I'm a little biased, but I think he's one of the greatest guitar players um, ever. Uh, I would have to agree with you. I appreciate that. No, Jeff was a unique guy. He was also a great guy. And the idea of the book was to tell a story, you know, both the good, the bad, the indifferent, and, and the fun. The wild ride, I suppose, literally, would when you wake up and Jeff's driving the tour bus, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but Jeff was blind. But he was a oh, kind yeah. of guy that uh, he didn't really take no for an answer. So driving a tour bus wasn't a big deal. Um, though it was a little hair-raising if he happened to be in the other seat. Um, as far as hair-raising, and, 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 you know, it was a great time. It was a party time. We really got to see our country. Um, I mean, we went a few years before we were 
you know, that overnight success of all of a sudden being discovered. But just traveling the country and meeting Canadians coast to coast, um, we just had a lot of fun. In fact, writing the book, and, and I was quite surprised to find, but I, I kind of remembered the days before the record deals and whatnot as a lot more fun. <laughs> oh, yeah? Less yeah, pressure in, or what? You're in the clouds. Well, you're in the club, you're interacting, it's all brand new. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a camaraderie in the band, uh, you know, one for one, all for all, and just a great time. And, and you live and you learn, meeting with particularly local musicians. Um, I mean, every region in Canada has, you know, their local guitar hero or, or band or musician or uh, musicologist. And uh, Jeff was a very knowledgeable guy. So to him, it wasn't just about playing music that we were playing, but it was also gave, gave him the opportunity to explore. He was a big collector of all 78 records, uh, uh, big band jazz, that kind of thing, Jelly Roll Martin, um, um, you know, Louis Armstrong. So, I mean, a lot of times we would spend just driving around trying to find old records that Jeff was really into collecting. He had 30,000 records, I read. Is that true? Actually, man, well, toward the end of his life, it was born in a neighborhood of about 250,000 or a couple hundred thousand plus. Wow. Uh, he, he, yeah, probably one of the great collections in, in the world uh, at the time. Wow. So you guys being in a band, it's kind of like being in a family. You're spending an awful lot of time together. Did you guys get along? Did you have times where you were like fighting and arguing or was it a, a lovely marriage? Um, for, for the most part, at the beginning, it was a lovely marriage. Um, you know, I, I liken it to this. We spend more time with each other than most people spend with their wives or their family. So, you know, we'd be, we'd be on the road literally 250, 300 days a year at the beginning. And, uh, you know, there's going to be times where things don't work out. You know, in the book, that's kind of a sport. I mean, I hear stories today that uh, from certain quarters that I kind of scratch my head because I just don't remember it that way. Um, but there's days where... You know, you have three people in a band, so there's, it's not really a, a democracy. There's always going to be two against one at some point. So there's bruised feelings and whatnot. Right. But overall, for the for the majority, we did well. I think I think where things get a little odd is uh, all of a sudden you have a record deal. Uh, you're in L.A. making records. You have all these big shop artists, musicians, and managers, and all of a sudden everyone has an opinion. You know, Jeff, you could have a better rhythm section or... You know, Tom, you should be, you know, getting percentages for all the management side you're doing or right. that kind of thing. But when push came to the one thing about Jeff, he was a very loyal guy. He was really good to us in that regard. And in return, you know, we did our best to look after Jeff. So overall, I, I think it was a good run. So is it true? Uh, go ahead. Like, like all rock and roll stories. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ending was a little rough. And uh, there's no way around that. But in the end, I made my peace with Jeff, and I made my peace with myself. But part of why I wrote the book, to be very candid, is I really felt Jeff was getting lost in history, Jeff and the band. And when you have an icon like Jeff Healy, that just can't be allowed to happen. I agree. So that's, you know, that's part of my mission here. Mm-hmm. So is it true, originally you were trying to get signed in Canada, but you were told that you didn't have a unique enough hook or whatever, right? So here you've got a, a blind guy playing his axe on his lap, and that wasn't unique enough for Canadian record companies. And then shortly thereafter, you were contacted by a company from the States. Is there any validity to that? 100%. It's a head scratcher. Um, to this day, I mean, I, I still kind of chuckle. Uh, I co-wrote the book with uh, Keith Greenberg, uh, who's an NBC producer in the States, and yeah. he did a lot of research. And, uh, you know, he, he's very familiar with Canada because he's done a lot of writing in Canada. And, uh, you know, he was scratching his head. But I had a guy uh, who's no longer with us. Uh, he was a uh, major executive in the Canadian industry, music industry. And that's, he literally told me that, you know, there's no real gimmick in this, and it's just really kind of a, you know, it's almost, he, Albert said it's kind of like a circus act that the guy's blind. And right. it really ticked me off. 
which is why at that point we'd been on the road a few years. Uh, we'd played Expo 86, I believe it was. And that was kind of the turning point. We met, we met, uh, BB King. He just loved Jeff. And then the, then the, you know, the chat started and all of a sudden, it's that same old story in Canada where, you know, a big American goes, oh, that guy's great. And all of a sudden people go, oh, he must be great. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of, I don't know what that is, but I've seen it a few times. It's the little brother uh, syndrome, I think. I'm sorry, the what syndrome? The little brother syndrome. Yep. I, I, I suspect there's a bit of that. Having yeah. said that, to this day, Canada dominates 20, 25% of the charts. And uh, we're only, uh, you know, population-wise, uh, you know, we're fighting way over at a weight limit. Yeah. And uh, I, don't know, I don't know why we feel that way, but we do. You know, having said that, the artists tend to always be very proud about being Canadian. But it was shortly thereafter, we kind of said, well, we have some money in the bank. Uh, you know, we have a lot of press. And off I went to New York and uh, made the rounds. And yeah. it wasn't too long after Mitchell Cohen from uh, Arista Records, uh, who at the time was run by Clyde Davis, who is one of the great legends of our business. Uh, he started everyone from Whitney Houston to uh, um, the Grateful Dead. I mean, how's that for dichotomy? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he, uh, I met with him. He said, well, you know, bring Jeff down. Actually, Mitchell came up sauce in Toronto uh, at a little place called Grossman's Tavern, uh, which, by the way, is the cover of the book. It's a gig where I played at Grossman's. And um, he, like, it brought us down to Clive. Uh, Clive was quite the opposite. He was more along the lines of, look, Jeff, I think you're a great guitarist. Uh, I'm not going to go out there and say you're a blind guitarist because that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. What matters to me is I think you're one of the greats. And uh, that's when we knew we had a home. And six months later, we're in a movie called Roadhouse. We're making our first album. We're hanging out with uh, movie stars. And it's kind of like, wow, <laughs> where'd that come from? It so, moved that quick. So what was it like but, to uh, hang out with Patrick Swayze? I'll give you a Patrick Swayze story because to this day, uh, first off, him and, him and Jeff just hit it off amazingly. They, they just loved each other. Yeah. Patrick was a, was a, not a bad um, acoustic guitar player. And, um, um, you know, he was just mesmerized by Jeff. At the beginning, it was a little rocky because no one had really told him we were coming down to sort of be the band in, in the movie as well as um, uh, doing most of the soundtrack. And, but once he met Jeff and they hung out, it became really cool. Patrick I was with him in a bar one night, and he just looked at me and he smiled. He said, watch this. He reached over my shoulder, he put out a cigarette, and behind me, two girls jumped at the same time for a cigarette butt, and were literally pushing each other over a cigarette butt. <laughs> and he kind of, he, like he shook his head and looked at me, and that's when I realized, man, it's a crazy world. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Interesting. So what was it like playing to American audiences as opposed to Canadian audiences? You know, I, I, don't, I don't really think there's a difference per se, to be honest. I, I think it's regional more than country. Um, right. You know, when you're in New York, it, it's more of a showman. You got to really, you're not too impressed. Not, not unlike Toronto. If I'm playing Halifax versus Toronto, you know, Halifax audiences, the uh, West Coast audiences were always great. Right. Um, I, th I think, uh, uh, what was, uh, in Victoria, I can't remember the name of the club now. It was, I don't even know if it's still there. It was one of the great clubs, but the audiences were just always over the top. Commodore, your part of the world, all right. through the interior. I mean, just fun, good times, particularly in the club days, because after you get to hang out and meet the folks and have a few drinks and uh, it was always a great time. Um, it wasn't quite that way in the States, even in the club days. Because I think being Canadian, um, people are a lot more like, we'll come up and shoot the breeze. Whereas in the States, it wasn't quite, well, you know, there's our buddies or let's go hang out. It wasn't quite that vibe. Right. You know, what it was more like is you meet more people in the industry would come backstage and all, whether it be radio folks or musicians or that kind of thing. Whereas in Canada, it always tended to be, you know, anybody would come backstage and next thing you know, you'd be at someone's house party. That's a nice vibe actually to play yeah. in. Excuse me? It's a really nice vibe, actually, to play in, I imagine. Oh, it was a... Couldn't have had more fun if we... I mean, 
I used to say to Jeff, I can't believe they pay us for this stuff. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was just way too much fun. So can I ask you, you know, a, a candid question? Fire. What was it like to get disrespected? I mean, here everyone is giving their power away to the, you know, the lead guitarist and the vocalist, and you're getting disrespected by people where they're suggesting that you be replaced. How do you deal with that on a a day-by-day basis when you're gigging? Do you just throw it out of your mind and, and say, well, they don't know what they're talking about, and you know yourself what you're contributing to the band? Do you know what I'm asking? Uh, I'm still... I'm still in therapy to this day. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, uh, in, in the book, I, I get into that because I didn't realize that it did bother me for a long time. Yeah. And actually in the book, what I say is, you know, to those who took those shots, because um, I was supposedly, you know, the tough guy in the band in the sense of, you know, I would defend the band and whatnot. But sure, it, it gets to you. But at the same time, um, Looking back, like I hadn't listened to our music in years, to be very candid. Mm-hmm. And listening to it, I think what we had is a written section, myself and Joe. We might not have been the best guys in the band, but I think Paul Schaefer summed it up really well. He said, you know, I've seen a lot of superstar bands, but they just don't have that chemistry yeah. where that sound works. I think, you know, Paul summed it up because we had, you know, Paul played in a couple of our records. Yeah. Paul's played with everyone in the world. He loved our band. That's sort of where you have to put your mind. You got to kind of go, well, he gets it and he's one of the great, so that's good enough. Yeah. Having said that, the disrespect side was a lot more from, uh, you get that a lot from local musicians. Right. It didn't start so much at the beginning. And what I always found interesting, and Jeff pointed this out to me one day, he goes, I don't know how it is that since then we played another couple thousand gigs and somehow you guys got worse while they got better. So, you know, you just got to roll with it. It's, it's my, the best answer I can have. But I, I can't tell you it doesn't bother you at some point, yeah. as it does. But by the same token, it's kind of like, well, I'm up here playing, and uh, they're not, so make the best of it and do my job. Yeah. Well, and I think you touched on something, too, where there is a relationship that happens between the band members and being there as emotional support so that, okay, I mean, if he's blind, he's not able to see what's actually going on. And just knowing and trusting that you've got his back all the time would also give him the ability to dig in deeper and really make his instrument, whether it's his voice or his guitar, to make it really sail. And so you contributed to that. That That's my intuitive hit. That, that's very true. And my deal in making this book with the co-author, Keith, was that he was free to interview and yeah. do whatever he wanted. And I, you know, I had no veto power at all. What he wrote was I had to live with it, good or bad. Believe me, there's some, there's some pretty good shots there with the book at me, but that's cool. The, the thing that touched me was both Paul Schaefer and a guy called Tom Panunzio, who's one of the great producers, worked with Jimmy Iovine for years. They produce every major record throughout the 80s, 90s, and even now. Um, Jimmy founded Interscope Records. But what both of them pointed out was exactly what you stated. Jeff, or Joe and Tom had Jeff's back. And that yeah. was, I think that gave Jeff a great deal of comfort. Um, at the same time, when your two bandmates are also the co-managers, Jeff had a lot of control over his own destiny. It's not like some big manager coming and saying, Jeff, just do it. If Jeff didn't want to do something, he didn't do it. So there's a comfort level there across the board. And that was as much part of the band as being on stage and playing. So right. that's a very good point you make. It was uh, 24-7. You had to care about one another and look after each other. Uh, Jeff being blind, he'd be the last guy to even admit to being blind. It was never something he would discuss. He didn't like being led around. He let you know what was what. And he was very much in control of his own destiny. Right. And I think it worked for him. I think toward the end, it got choppy. You know, you reach the point where people beat up on you constantly. It wears everyone down. And all of a sudden, there's issues within the band. And I guess that's to be expected. The only thing I will point out is we had almost a 20-year run. And uh, according to Billboard, most bands are average lasts of three to five years. Yeah. So... 
we beat the odds in, in that respect and clearly had a lot of love each each other throughout most of the time. Not to say, you know, we didn't have some doozies toward the end. And to this day, there's still some hard feelings at certain quarters. Yeah. But uh, again, I, I'm, I'm at peace with all that. Where did those hard yeah. feelings come from? Um, again, in the book, it, 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 I, I don't think the estate's a big fan of mine. Um, and uh, I've heard various reasons. And yeah. that's kind of part of the reason I wrote the book. I mean, these people weren't on the road. They weren't there. The book isn't to talk about what's going on now. The book was to tell the story of three very unusual individuals who came together to beat Apollo Odds. Uh, with probably one of the great guitar players. To this day, would Jeff have made it on his own? I, I can't answer that. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, should he have? Absolutely. Would he have? It's a strange world, hard to say. I think sometimes it takes a combination of uh, three different outlooks to come together and really put that that goal together and really pursue it. And um, we just didn't know how to take no for an answer. Yeah. So... Um, I'm not sure if that's answered the question. No, I, I think it does. So just just to give the the listeners um, a teaser for the book, share right. with us a story or from two or three or two or three from the book of one of the crazy things that happened to you guys. Well, there's a uh, there's several, but I mean the one I always remember we've been in Europe and uh, we were we were partying pretty hard those days. And uh, I'm thinking we're back in Canada. Actually, we're in the States. I think, uh, yeah, outside Boston. And I'm in my bunk, and the bus is just all over. And it literally throws me out of my bunk, and I land on my head. And I'm dazed, and I'm a little hungover. And I'm like, man, who's driving this thing? This driver sucks. And I'm walking, trying to walk up to the front of the bus. And I'm looking in front at the time, I believe Cody was the Texan, was our bus driver. Yeah. And I'm like, man, what's the bus driver doing on the wrong side of the bus? I guess we're still in England. And as I got closer, it's, uh, hey, it's right, Jeff. Little to the left. Nope, nope. Little to the right. And I'm like, Jeff, what? Yeah, Jeff's driving the damn tour bus. <laughs> that was pretty well. And the joke afterwards, if he got pulled over, would they have busted him for being blind or being drunk and blind? <laughs> Yikes. So, wow. I mean, Jeff was a pretty interesting character. I mean, he's, he was in charge of his own destiny, both on and off the stage. So, again, this is a really interesting perspective. Uh, just the title of your book, Having the Best Seat in the House. As the drummer, so often the audience doesn't really see you but you get to see the backs of the other musicians that you're playing with and you get to see the audience from a totally different perspective. What was it like to, uh, you're not playing second fiddle. I mean, the, the percussion section of a band is like the most important section because you have to provide that consistent tempo, correct? And I won't say it's the most important, but I mean, it's just as important as everything else. Well, two things. I mean, the joke in the band was, you know, I, I had a time issue. So it would be speeding up, slower down, and right. I'd be blamed, and I'd blame them, and you know, it became a bit of an issue. But all that aside, being in the back, what you watch is, firstly, I got to watch Jeff Healy play every friggin' night. You can't, you know, you can't pay me enough to do that. Yeah. I mean, I played with a guy thousands of times, and he was such an amazing player that there literally wasn't a night that went by that even having played with him, you know, countless times previous to, he didn't blow me away. And depending on the mood Jeff was in, what made it exciting was we never played the same song the same way ever. Right. Never rehearsed, so, you know, it was whatever was in Jeff's mind. And that's what made us great, me, myself, and Joe, in that we could read Jeff and we tended to know where he was going a lot of times before he got there. Um, um, and that was great. That aside... There are other nights where, I mean, I'd miss beats because I was shaking my head some, from some riff that Jeff just blew off, you know, just blew me away with. The other thing being in the back with Beth's eating the house is you get to see the audience yeah, and how they're, re they're reacting and the joy and the awe and the, just, the, you know, just the laughing and shouting and screaming. I mean, it's, it's really great to watch. Now, the downside of that is the nights where the, 
the record company would be out in the audience or uh, folks like yourself, radio folks or whatever, yep. you see that too. And your mind tends to wonder because you start calculating, geez, I hope they like the show. I wonder if they're going to, you know, play in a good word for us, that yeah. kind of thing. So there's pros and cons, but you don't miss anything. And that's why I decided to call it Best Seat House because it's literal and figuratively. So it's pretty amazing that you played for 20 years and you said there wasn't a single gig that you uh, did with him where you weren't blown away. Never. Even nights where he thought we had one of the worst shows ever. Yeah. I'd be shaking my head because his bad show would, you know, a lot of people would just love to have a bad show, let alone one of his good shows. Right. Uh, To put that in perspective, I remember when uh, I got to see him and Stevie Ray Vaughn play together. And Stevie was just blown away by Jeff. And to me, Stevie was one of the greats. And then conversely, on the side of the tradition of the blues, you have B.B. King, who, you know, we met in your, in your neck of the woods at Expo. And uh, after he met Jeff and played with Jeff, we, we played with him, you know, dozens of times thereafter. And he just loved Jeff. And it shows you from two entirely different perspectives, you know, solid traditional blues and blues rock, Stevie Ray and traditional BB, and he just couldn't say enough good things about Jeff. They thought he was one of the greatest guitar players ever. Right. But the capper, the capper to me was the respect Jeff got when, when you know, George Harrison agreed to play on Guitar Gently Weeps, which is a classic track the Beatles did. Yeah. Um, you know, that told me everything I had to know about the respect that Jeff was getting. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play you know, any of his jazz? Because he was really passionate about jazz, too. No, that, that was Jeff's world and yeah. his world alone. What we did as a label back in the early days, we released a couple of, of the records. Um, but, you know, I got to see Jeff play a lot. Um, the, the reality is Jeff, I think, in a perfect world, would have probably preferred to be playing big band jazz, truth be known. Right. Um, that's, that's his theory. I can't, I, I can't tell you that's a fact, but that's, you know, having lived through it, that was my sense of it. Well, we know some psychics. We could actually have a discussion with him for you if you want. That was a joke, Tom. That was a joke. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. My, my drum ears are a little weak, so I don't get everything every time, but uh, well, we are. That's actually an interesting comment. How is your hearing? I mean, being the drummer and being on the stage with all of the, you know, the high high volumes between monitors and the front of house, did you ever find any any hearing loss or were you consistently wearing ear protection? No. Um, in fact, we, we were some of the guys that were late coming to the in-ear monitors. Um, again, we just, you know, if it wasn't loud and scratchy and bombastic, then it didn't make sense. Why, why would you do so? Having said that, I've survived relatively intact. My my left ear is a little shot, but my right ear is fairly in pretty good shape. Yeah. So you know, I did okay. Um, once you get the in ear monitors, then then um, you know, it took a week or two to get used to them. But after that, it was kind of like, man, why didn't we have those forever? Yeah. Because we had companies offering them to us for years. But once we got into it, it was a, a lot better way to go. Right. But um, you know, I still get. Uh, a little bit of, of the ring on occasion, and mainly in the left ear. But so far, so good. It hasn't got any worse over the years, so I'm, I'm hoping we're good. At least you didn't uh, have to struggle like Mickey Hart, right? God, no. That's uh, him and who's the other? Uh, you know, I know some guys who have run into, you know, on the road recently, and there, as one guy put it to me, he's playing between the ring. He can't figure out sometimes he can barely hear the music. Yeah. But he's still up there because that's, you know, that's what he loves doing and that's how he knows all he knows. Yeah. But as you say, other folks, they've lost their careers because of it. Yeah. So it's, it's unfortunate. But I, I think today people are a lot more, um, uh, a lot more uh, health conscious and a lot more conscious of the monitors, like they're not blowing them up. Yeah. Jeff is a guy, depending on the audience, you know, the joke was, you know, guys would say, man, like he's had 10 all the time. He's got a, I'll give you an Expo story. When we first got to Expo, when we got to um, Vancouver, the hotel that was supposedly put in the sack when we walked in, we were, we were supposed to be there to play a little bar. Can't remember the hotel, we up the road from Yale. And uh, I realized the bar's under construction. Go to the desk, manage 
agent comes out and says, hey, we're a band. Oh, didn't your agent get a hold of you? We're, we canceled the gig. We were turning ourselves into a country uh, a country bar. Well, we just flew from the Halifax right across the country. And we used the last of our money, and we're sitting out there in Vancouver with our, you know, a couple of guitars, drumsticks, yeah. and a couple of suitcases, and no money. So the guy felt bad, and he said, look, um, you know, I can put you up in, in one of the conference rooms and put some cots in there. Needless to say, Jeff couldn't see, but he sure as hell was staring him and Joe were staring holes through me because yeah. I had booked the gig. We find the uh, promoter, and needless to say, I wasn't too happy. got a little, little intense. And uh, to his credit, he pulled out, he phoned me one team, he said, you're not going to believe the luck we just had. This American band was in a car accident on the way up to Escobar, or up to um, Expo, and you guys have the uh, lunch slot. Didn't seem too concerned about the poor American band, and he was just happy that he got us the gig. Right. And playing that slot at lunchtime, Jeff coined two phrases. He called them gray hairs and ankle biters, because that was our crowd, like old people and little kids. Yeah. And constantly, turn it down, turn it down. The manager would come over and say, look, you got to turn it down. Your guy's on 11 or on 10. I said, what are you talking about? He's on 11. And if you tell him to turn it down, I'll knock it up to 20. And that's how Jeff was. You tell him to do something, he did it the other way. <laughs> the short story of that, of that, though, is those passes got us in to see B.B. King. And that's where we met B.B. backstage. And he got Jeff up that night. And I really believe that was a turning point in our career. It's amazing how synchronicity works, hey? Incredible synchronicity. Uh, throughout our career, it was always there. Like yeah. the movie, um, George Harrison. Just, and, and not always, the lovely thing of synchronicity is, well, you're out there making all these plans to succeed. You know, all of a sudden, destiny just drops a great one on you. Now, it, it works conversely, too. There can be some, some negatives that go with it. But overall, we had a fantastic run. Yeah. Well, I think the key is, is you're in the zone, right? When you're performing, you can't be thinking about yesterday. You're not thinking about tomorrow. You're in the moment doing your, your magic, right? And that somehow just opens the door for other things. Would you agree? 100%, 200%. And I'll tell you why. Jeff one time said to me, and it always stuck with me, on those great shows, like there's nights where you come off stage and all three of you know it was unique and, and special. And whether it can be replicated or not, who knows, but it's magic. Strictly yeah. beautiful magic. And one time he told me, he said, you know, we're so lucky. He said, well, I feel those nights. That's when I know why I'm on this planet. And that stayed with me forever. Like we were given blessings and that we were able to be able to have that ability and that opportunity to do that. And years later, all of a sudden you're playing with, you know, the Stones or you're playing with, um, Top or, you know, Bon Jovi, whoever. Yeah. And the one thing I noticed, and this is why I think I still like our bar days when I look back, is that joy is still there, but it's a different kind of joy. All of a sudden now you're playing arenas and stadiums and it's kind of like, it's still great, don't get me wrong, but you don't have quite the same magic that you have when you're in like a 200-seater where the crowd's feeding off of you and you're feeding off the crowd and you have that reciprocal energy going through the room. That's magic. Yes. We just experienced that a couple days ago. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Jeff Martin of the Tea Party. Of course. Well, he came to yeah. Nelson a couple days ago and they did not promote the show very well and it was not a very good turnout. And you could see where it, it really just, it took him out at the knees. But being a, a true performer, he got up and it was extremely intimate and you could see his vulnerable side and everyone just, they held space for him and it was a really special, special evening. And that wouldn't have happened if the place was packed and he couldn't have seen the, the whites of everyone's eyes in the audience. I, I think that that shows you two things. Firstly, that Jeff's a, a consummate performer that, you know, over the years he would he, he could deal with that. Yeah. And that he was up to the task and the show goes on. And, and I, you know, I really respect and appreciate that because I think 
when artists, you know, if you ever see an artist who maybe just lost somebody or has had a tragic experience, often, more times than not, that turns out to be one of their great shows. Yeah. Um, you know, that just goes with it. I mean, it, 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 for Jeff Huey, it was, he told me a story once because I was bitching one day, I think we were in Maine, and there was a huge blizzard and there was like three people in the room. And, uh, you know, I'm like, well, maybe we should just, you know, do a, a new date and rebook it because we're on tour. And he's like, listen, all three people came to see his play. Get the damn gear, we're playing. And, you know, that, that was his attitude. Yeah. And I never saw a day that went by where Jeff wouldn't sign an autograph or, I mean, he was all about the audience. And that, that was really important to him. Well, when you have that then, kind of loyalty to your listeners, then they have that same loyalty for you. What goes around comes around. Would you not agree? I, I believe so. And, and that's why, you know, what happens when, when, I mean, half the battle when all of a sudden, I mean, we were just a little bit, relatively speaking, for blues band, we did amazingly well. Yeah. But, man, when we got to play with Stones or some of the big boys, I don't know how those guys keep their, their head, their, their feet on the ground. I mean, in my case, I go back to Nova Scotia and the Maritimes, you know, once, twice a year. And those guys, you know, oh, yeah, big shot, you're buying the beers. I mean, that keeps you pretty back, you're back in high school kind of. <laughs> yeah. But these guys, it's like, uh, you know, they don't know the word no. Free drugs, free girls, free this, free that. And there's not, there's a reason that, that, and many, you know, some some people don't make it through because it's just too wild a world. And once you get into that kind of indulgence, it's a very hard thing to come back to. I mean, we got there ourselves in our own way. And uh, it took a little bit to sort of get your feet back on the ground and realize that, you know, you're on the planet Earth. Yeah. Um, I'm a child of the movies. And a film that's going through my head right now in this interview is Almost Famous. Have you ever seen it? How accurate a depiction do you feel that the movie gave for the for the business in general? I, I think I think I mean obviously Hollywood's going to you know yeah I guess inflate somewhat, but not particularly. I thought that was reasonably close, and, and, and the way it was shot, I thought it had that feel to it. Yeah, I, I, I think I think what happens that, that look we can all get into that trap where you know hindsight's twenty twenty. In, in writing the book, I mean, there's a few times I, I didn't even want to put it out because, you know, some of it hurts a lot. Because I realized, for instance, we were burning Jeff out. I don't think Jeff knew he was getting burned out, and I didn't know that he was being burned out. And what happens is you get caught up in an industry where you're a commodity. Yeah. And the machine has to keep moving, the money gets lost. And it becomes all about dollars and cents. Jeff was never a money guy, and Jeff was never a celebrity guy. He couldn't give a goddamn who you were or, you know, how much money he had. He just wasn't that guy. Yeah. And one of the things that would get in Jeff's mind, he couldn't stand the idea of image. You know, they'd be dressed in this way or we got to dress that way. Um, so being in that industry with a guy, and maybe, you know, it's been pointing out to me because he was blind, he didn't, couldn't give a damn about that. But I'm pretty sure if Jeff was sighted, he still, he still wouldn't care about that. And Jeff was strictly about the music. When you take that kind of artist and you put that up against the music industry, quote-unquote, in business, quote-unquote, there were, there's where some of the risks would start to happen in our band because I was more the point guy dealing with labels and whatnot and, you know, I could see the argument, well, you know, guys, if, if we do this show and we do that interview, then this is going to happen because you're always, you know, you're trying to build a career. And that, that did cause problems because Jeff really wasn't in that, into that side of it. Yeah. At the beginning, he, he was okay, but I think he got pretty burned out pretty quick in just the industry at large. I mean, you know, there's, I've listened and been in enough interviews with Jeff to realize that he spoke his mind. Yeah. Now, does that work for you necessarily? No. But is it honest? Absolutely. And I think to this day, that's why a lot of people love and respect Jeff, because he spoke his mind. Yeah. So it must have been, it must have been a fine line for you to walk, because you were management as well as uh, an artist. In terms of burnout, for example, part of you still wants the gig to continue, 
but there's another part of you, I'm sure, in the back of your mind, you're saying, I need a break. And it's obvious that that my other band members also need a break. Do you know what I'm saying? Yep. And again, I think that falls on me, unfortunately, again, putting together the book and yeah. And you have because all of a sudden you're analyzing in, in, in you know in, in perfect twenty twenty vision, our river vision, and you realize some of the mistakes that were made. You know, the flip side of that though is and, and a fairly serious manager said this to me one day. Was Tom there's a pretty good chance that you guys would have probably been over after your first record. Because he just didn't think we had the personality. First, we figured if a manager had managed to get in there, a big time, let's say LA or yeah, you know, big time manager, uh, the band would have been fired immediately. It becomes about control. Um, whether Jeff could have put up with outsiders or not, you know, remains to be seen. I know when the band split and Jeff carried on, he managed himself. He, he never had outside management, so I think that was something that he was very comfortable with. Yeah, the reality is. There's two sides to that coin. On one hand, could a big-time manager have done a much better job with the band? Possibility. The flip side of that is, though, would, would, would they have been able to take us as far as we went? And would he have I, trusted so, them? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I'll never really be able to answer. Um, um, I, I think Jeff got what he wanted and went as far as he wanted. I don't think... As I say, I think Jeff was just as happy to be playing in little bars, playing trumpet with his with his jazz band, whether it be the jazz wizards or whoever. That that was truly his own. Now, having said that, I think he was burned up. But before Jeff passed, you know, he was out playing our old music, and I always kind of got a chuckle out of that. So he obviously had some love for it. Yeah. So was it a, a long, drawn-out death for him, or did it end quickly, at least? Uh, I, I, I really shouldn't go there. I, I wasn't okay. there, and it would be fair to me. Okay. Just sorry, fair to the family for me to comment. You know my, my hope. I'm, I wasn't trying to sensationalize. I was just, you know, expressing my wishes that I hope that his passing was as peaceful as possible. That That's all I was trying to say. Uh, I, I, I told it was, and oddly enough, I'm now in the same... Uh, a hospital that Jeff was in, um, unfortunately, I had my own cancer situation. Oh, no. And just, oh, it's, it's, it'll be fine, uh, you know, it is what it is. But well, I was in one day, and, and one of the uh, doctors uh, who was involved in the care of Jeff, yeah. you know, once uh, I think she realized, you know, who it was and said, uh, hey, you, you played with Jeff, and then it was, yeah. And for reasons I won't get into, I wasn't at the bedside, and nor was I welcome. But, um, the thing that made me feel good is she told me that Jeff had his humor to the very end. And to me, Jeff was one of the wittiest, funniest guys I ever knew. So it was really good to hear that. Um, you know, he, he uh, in the book, again, there's uh, um, Lucifer who plays there with uh, Mick Jagger, but he's one of the great musicians, or sorry, with uh, Ringo, but one of the great musicians. He, in the interview, talked about talking to Jeff the night before he passed. And he felt that Jeff was in a good place, but it was one of those days that Steve will never forget. It was a hard night having that conversation. Yeah. So our show is called Shift Happens. And what we... Love the name. <laughs> thank you. We talk about the shifts that happen in people's lives. And out of all of your amazing experience in your life, in your career in music, what would you say would be the top situation or couple that caused the shifts in your life that made your life what it is? Oh, that's pretty easy. The first time I met Jeff Healy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I was doing a master's in urban planning, and I was just playing, you know, I was a hack drummer, just playing the occasional gig here and there for beer money. Yeah. And... See, I used to play with a guy called Buzz Upshaw in Toronto, who was a great guitarist. And Jeff, who was underage, used to come out and see us. I had no idea that Jeff was even blind. I mean, that's how much he got around. Right. And uh, one day he said, look, I want you to come down to Grossman's and sit in with me. So I went down and 
that night was the night my life changed because I personally I felt like a moron because he jumps up and he's knocking shit over <laughs> after the gig. I'm like, Jesus, Jeffy, you might want to watch you drink it. I didn't clue when he was blind till he kind of looked at me weird. And I don't know how I missed it, I just did. Mm-hmm. But we sat backstage and he said, I'd like you to play drums and let's start a band. And that definitely changed my life because I'd probably be another planner somewhere. Who knows? Right. <laughs> so, how old were you at the life time? In many, many, many ways. How old were you at the time? I was an old guy. I was 26, and Jeff, I think, was 17. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that, you know, that kind of age difference at that earliest stage in life, you would have had a, being 26 versus 17, you would have been more of a big brother or parental person, if that makes any sense. So that would because be a good not, fit for the band, well, right? It doesn't make sense, because if you told Jeff that, he'd blast you. Yeah. Because the thing I can tell you about Jeff, he was his old, his old man day one. Yeah. And I, I mean, Jeff didn't really change that much to me from 17 till you know, all those years we put in together. Right. With the exception, as I say earlier, said earlier, the things we didn't recognize at the time. I mean, you can't go back and change things. Yeah. But what you're left with is, is you look back at the whole thing and you go, well, was it a good run? Was it an honest run? Was it a fun run? Did you, did you did you have a good life? Did you know? Did you do good by the other guys in the band? The answer is each guy's going to have their own answer. Yeah. And you know, toward the end, as I say, it wasn't it wasn't pretty. Um, I I I now at peace with pretty much everything. And I give thanks for the great life I had, right. know, good and bad. Even even the things that were, I mean, I laugh now at some of the things I used to get upset about. You know, I don't know, the, the stage wasn't in the right place, or that light was red, it should have been green. Or I mean, you look back now and you go, Christ, you're lucky to even be there, let alone be wearing about lights. Yeah. So you kind of got to pinch yourself a little bit. And, and again, I was without Jeff, and to a certain degree, Joe, um, you know, I don't think I would have had that life. Did you have a wife and kids too? Nope. No. I, uh, I, not, not yet so far. So I don't want to say so good, but that was never, for me, when I was on the road, I, there was a couple times where, you know, you meet the one, but the problem with the road to me was if you can't be faithful, why bother? Yeah. Um, and the road was just too, don't get me wrong. It's not like girls were, you know, we went to Beatles, but at the same time, between partying too much and, and some of those temptations out there, I just didn't see me being a stable husband or father. And luckily, my uh, my brother managed to get himself married and has two lovely kids, so he handled that department. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, once you get yourself better, you should come out to the Kootenays for six months. I'm sure you'd be able to find a, a really good down-to-earth Kootenay chick. Well, let me tell you. Um, what, what's the lake uh, you guys are by? Kootenay Lake. Or Slocan Lake. I, I think it was Kootenay Lake. I'll leave you with this because, unfortunately, folks, I got another interview coming up yep. from the East Coast. But um, we're on that lake, and, and it was a day or two off, and uh, one of the local folks brought us out. He had a lovely speedboat, and then I guess it was some kind of houseboat on the lake where they were fishing. Yeah. And we, we had too many uh, cookies, I guess. Or what's the other bit? Coconies. 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 Yeah. And we're, you know, we're pretty much over the limit. Next thing I know, I, I, it's another, it's kind of, we're going to end this, I guess, how we started. But Jeff's driving the damn boat. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like, how'd that happen? But you know, the only thing but Jeff, I never heard anyone say no to. I assume someone said, Jeff said, I want to drive. Someone said, sure. Next thing he's driving the boat. And I always remember that day because we then went to the houseboat and they were all fishing. And the thing about Jeff, he hated fish. Couldn't stand it. Yeah. But he was competitive. And he started fishing and he catches a few fish. And to his credit, he did take a bite of the fish because it's kind of like I caught him. I'm going to at least take a bite. I always remember that because that's probably the only bite of fish Jeff had in his life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a kokanee salmon. Hey, 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 I really appreciate this guy. Thanks so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you, Tom. Before I let you go, though, I have to oh, share a joke that I just created in the middle of this interview. 
<laughs> How do drummers father children? <laughs> I'm scared to ask. Okay, how? They use the rhythm method. <laughs> well, I'd be really bad at it because speeding up and slowing down would probably screw that up, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it really was a pleasure talking to you, and I wish you lots of success with the book, not just for yourself, but in honor of the man himself. And totally. it really was a pleasure. Well, I'll leave you with the warning. I ran into Tom Cochran um, on the East Coast a um, few months back yeah. of Canada. And uh, he was playing a gig. It was a private gig. I just had me there. He didn't know I was there. I didn't know he was there. And the third song in, he starts talking about Jeff Healy. And he tells a couple of stories about Jeff. And, I mean, I'm knocked out. I'm flabbergasted. And we're so honored because Tom gave us our first national tour. And later, he gave Amanda Marshall, uh, who we also managed her first national tour. So Tom would probably be the second guy in my life that really, you know, made things great by giving us those opportunities. Yes. And we had a little get-together reception for Tom after. And he left me with this line. It always stuck in my head. And he, uh, he said, why the, oh, yeah, sorry, right. why the F word isn't Jeff Healy in the Canadian Hall of Rock and Roll thing? And Amen. that's kind of where I decided, you know, when I'm putting this damn book up, because we got to bring this guy back and make people remember what Jeff and who he was. Well, good on you. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Um, guys, you mind me asking, is this, well, will I have an opportunity, will you be sending these interviews to the, to the publisher? Yes. How do we, uh, yes, bring? definitely. Well, well th- thanks so much, guys. You broke me in and I'm now back in the saddle. Really appreciate it. Great. Well, we're glad to help, and you helped us, too. And you did well. Yes, you gave us a good interview to share with our listeners. Fantastic. Have a good one, guys. All the best. Take care. And same to you. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You're in the middle of another episode of shifthappens.media on CJLYFM, Radio with a Heart. Shift Happens airs from 2 until 4 p.m. every Tuesday and also every Sunday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLYFM. So hopefully you enjoyed listening to the interview as much as we enjoyed conducting it. Just to clarify, Tom Stevens' book, entitled The Best Seat in the House, will be available starting on November 6th this year. And speaking of November 6th, that is the midterm election day in the U.S., and in dedication to this critical point in human history, we wanted to play another track from the CD we produced in the aftermath of 9-11. Sadly, the content is just as applicable today as it was 17 years ago. Yep. Yep. 